We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, listeners. You're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths, and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana. We're recording here on Lucharita, and as we are a podcast, we would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here and at home, I pay my respects to elders past and present. My name is Ollie Dove, and today you're going to be hearing a familiar voice in Georgia Stewart. You may remember Georgia from her episode last year on galactic jets spurting out from the centres of large galaxies. Now, Georgia and I have taken to the rugby field together before, but we've never co-hosted an episode before, so I'm stoked to have her here and see her interviewing. But I'm going to pass on over to Georgia now to introduce our guest. Thanks, Ollie, and hello, everyone. On today's episode, we'll be talking all things Antarctica and finding out what's going on under the ice. To help us out with this, we're very fortunate to be joined by the wonderful Anya Redding. Anya is a professor of geophysics at the University of Tasmania, data science whiz and lover of all things outdoors. Anya, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us this morning. Anya, your career has taken you all over the world, including to Antarctica several times, but what started it all? What drew you to geophysics? I've always been interested in the why. You know, you walk down the street and you wonder, why is the sky blue? Why is that rainbow coloured? And um, it's so often physics and um, just the wonderful selection of, of ideas that come out of, of physics and physical science that helps you answer those why questions. And as Georgia said at the beginning, I'm a lover of all things outdoors, so I really wanted to do my physics outside. That's amazing, Anya. A lot of your recent work focuses on remote regions in Australia and Antarctica, which is, of course, a very, very remote region. What is it about these places specifically that interests you? I think I'm always attracted, and many many of my colleagues are attracted, to um, the path less travelled. We're trying to find out about things that are essentially unknown or very little known. Uh, yeah, very, very interested in putting out seismic instruments or geophysical instruments or anything that helps us find out about those places, those parts of the planet that are less understood. That's fascinating. And what skills or qualifications did you need to end up where you are? What was your undergrad in? So my undergrad was in astrophysics and geology. Um, I was studying in Scotland. There's a beautiful old Royal Observatory in Scotland. Um, So it was lovely small classes uh, in the astrophysics. And um, with those two specialties, um, very much just general physics and maths. So it doesn't really matter terribly much what, what the end degree is called. It's kind of what you study along the way. So then how did you go from Scotland to ending up here in Tassie? What was the leap there? 
Oh, so the link there was, again, I think, the, the call of things that are less, less studied, um, just because of the layout of where universities are. I think the Northern Hemisphere is a bit more studied than the Southern Hemisphere. And I was lucky enough to get a PhD um, position studying New Zealand. And that kind of got me into um, being fascinated with the Southern Hemisphere view on plate tectonics, which is that Earth's crust is split up into, into tectonic plates, and those, those plates um, move very slowly, but very definitely building mountains like the Southern Alps in New Zealand, and, um, and also um, the, all the mountain ranges in, in Antarctica. Sounds like you've had a bit of everything in your career. You've had astro, you've had geo, you've had mountains, you've had tectonics. Did you get to go to Antarctica during your PhD in New Zealand or were you studying the Antar data from Antarctica that had already been collected? So my Antarctic journey started just right after my PhD. My first job um, after being um, awarded the PhD was with British Antarctic Survey. So um, I was really lucky to get the you know, the dream job right out of my PhD, which was working with British Antarctic Survey. Um, so my job there was as, a, as an on-land geophysicist, um, so very much travelling um, on snowmobiles, uh, putting out instruments and trying to find out um, as much as we could about, about um, the area of Antarctica near uh, Rothera Station, which is the British station. So data science and computational tools like programming obviously come into your research uh, a fair bit. Those skills seem really intimidating, I think, for a lot of people starting out in a research career. Uh, it certainly was for me when I was starting mine. Um, did you always have a bit of a knack for it or was it a lot of persistence, a lot of like head bashing against the wall to um, figure out the techniques that you're going to use during your PhD and then later on? So I think... Uh, it's true that we get good at what we do. And if you think about what people do in their everyday lives, we don't do all that much maths in our everyday lives, apart from maybe working out the, the weekly budget. We don't necessarily program computers much in our everyday lives, but we do a lot of talking to each other and we do a lot of planning uh, the week. So I think it's kind of natural that things we don't do much of seem daunting. So I would always say, um, give it a try. Um, if it's something like um, working with data sets using computers to, to explore data sets using com computational techniques to explore data sets, um, it, you don't know it's hard until you've given it a go. And I think people are often a lot more, um, have a lot more talent and um, there's a lot more things kind of under the, under the covers there than, than we really know. And um, it's just a lot of fun having a go at things. And often once you have a go at things, they're not so bad. Stick with us listeners for part two as we dive into Anya's current research, including travelling to Antarctica for fieldwork. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're joined by Antarctic science expert, Anya Redding. 
Anya, much of your recent work has focused on understanding how ice sheets change over time and what's going on below them. Why is learning about this subsurface region important? So one thing to check in on is just what is Antarctica like? So it seems as if it's a long way away. Um, Lots of people have images of penguins, of icebergs. Uh, But the way that I think about Antarctica as a geophysicist is basically that it's a huge continent. And unusually, it has this, this huge ice sheet on top of the continent. And that ice sheet contains... Um, an enormous volume of ice, and that ice is held above sea level by the fact that it's frozen. And what is it about this ice sheet that you're researching into? So that enormous body of frozen ice is subject to forcings, and it's subject to forcings by the ocean that surrounds the continent of Antarctica, and also forcings from the atmosphere. When the atmosphere gets just a little bit warmer... Um, that changes the way that the ice sheet responds. So the work that I do and the work that I do with my colleagues is really uh, trying to inform what's going to happen to that really big ice sheet as the ocean warms a little bit or as the the atmosphere um, delivers more snow perhaps or um, is a little warmer in temperature. And... How do you go studying this? We've talked about your fieldwork and your computational work, but are you collecting parts of the ice sheet that you study back here, or what's the process? So one of the fun things about Antarctic work is that we work really closely with people with lots of different skill sets. And um, there's a lot of my colleagues use satellite data to study the ice, Um, That, of course, has the advantage that um, you can see the ice from above. The range of techniques that I use and that my direct colleagues use really involves looking beneath the ice. So I'm really interested in stuff that's hidden. Um, And that seems like just a a really um, great detective problem, um, set of problems that we want to solve. So the techniques that I use really... Um, draw on seismic data. And seismic data, as um, we know from earthquakes, is a good way of finding out what's happening to hidden parts of the earth. And so we can use also use seismic data to learn about what's happening in hidden parts of the ice sheet. And what exactly is seismic data? So when you hear a sound... The reason that you hear a sound is because the air molecules are vibrating, which is um, making energy come from um, my voice to your ears. And seismic data is is like sound and some other waves um, in addition to sound-type waves that travel through solids. So if something moves like um, a geological fault or um, maybe a crevasse um, splitting um, a deep part of an ice sheet, then that disturbance makes a sound wave and some other types of waves, and those waves travel to the recording instrument, and that recording instrument, just like a microphone, will pick up those waves. So we can um, uh, 
basically unravel the puzzle of what was the process that made those waves when we have that seismic record. So it's kind of like a, a wiggly line on a page, um, but we can, we can um, unravel all the different information in that wiggly line. So in terms of deploying these devices, how, how do you do that? Do you have to sort of drill down under the ice or they sit on top? Or, yeah, what's the process for deploying them? Yeah, so deploying seismic instruments involves travelling to little visited places and essentially all you do is dig a hole. <laughs> it's really important that the instrument just stays at a constant temperature. So we bury the instruments to keep them at a nice, even temperature and we make sure that they're level and we make sure that they're pointing in the direction that we um, expect them to point. And that's because... Each seismic instrument is three instruments in one. So we measure the up and down motion, the north-south motion and the east-west motion. And that three component motion is what we use um, to work out what processes are going on. How do you decide where to deploy the instruments? Because Antarctica is a huge place. So what is involved in deciding where you'll be deploying them? So it's um, multiple factors tell us where to put our instruments. Um, we're interested uh, in putting the instruments where they'll give us the most important information. So we're especially interested um, in the region around Casey Station at the moment because uh, there are some locations close to Casey Station where... As we understand it, the ocean is really um, impacting quite uh, severely on the glacier. So we want to go where the, uh, where the ice sheet is potentially changing fastest. And the other factor is that we basically go where we can go. So there are some parts of East Antarctica especially that are um, almost beyond reach of um, easy aircraft access you can get there by aircraft, but it involves a big pyramid of first depoting fuel drums. And um, then if you imagine you use up the fuel in getting to the place that you want to go. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a, a balance between um, using too much fuel and um, the most exciting science targets. The way that you're collecting this seismic data, it sounds like it would involve huge advances in technology to be achieved before you can even have the instruments to use. So is this field relatively recently developed or has have you known sort of the very baseline what's happening with more crudimentary devices? So this is a great field to be in in terms of technology. It's one of the exciting things. So kind of every three or four years, it almost seems that something new happens. And um, one, of the, one of the real uh, key things is that the instruments use very little power. So the current set of instruments that we're working with are very low-power devices. That means that when we put them out with a big battery, um, it takes a long time for that instrument to use the, the power that's held in the battery. Uh, we do top up the battery with solar panels. Of course, in Antarctica, it is dark through um, some months of the winter, or almost dark through 
some months of the winter. So uh, that's been a real, the recent improvements in uh, power technology and battery technology have been a real enabler. So we were used to only really record through the summer, but just recently we can record right, right the way through the winter, which is giving us a much better picture of how those glaciers are behaving. And those glaciers are making little ice quakes for us. And, um, yeah, it's really exciting. You can just basically uh, map out the ice quakes and look at the ice quakes in details, those wiggly lines I was talking about earlier, um, to piece together um, how the glacier is uh, behaving, how the glacier is responding to the uh, changing forcings. Is there a difference between your standard earthquake and an ice quake? So one way that earthquakes and ice quakes differ is that earthquakes uh, are uh, much more uniform. If you imagine earthquakes happening on a fault, faults either sort of slip sideways or in a way that uh, pulls the earth apart or compresses the earth. So there's kind of three different types of, of earthquake mechanism to simplify things a little bit. And um, earthquakes have a, have a sort of pattern of what those waves will look like. Obviously, you can get sometimes really big earthquakes get really complicated, um, but a medium-sized earthquake will, will have a, a fairly defined pattern. Ice quakes, on the other hand, could look like an earthquake. Um, if, if a glacier slips over the bed beneath, that could look like a, a stick-slip kind of earthquake. But most ice quakes have a much more complicated signature. So the big way that earthquakes and ice quakes differ is that ice quakes are much more complicated. So what exciting or unexpected results have you found from your research? One thing that I haven't talked about yet is that we can use seismic data actually for a whole range of things. And if you imagine seismic data with nothing happening, like just an apparently flat line on your seismic record, if you um, bump up the, um, the amplitude, the, the strength of that signal, then um, you actually see that there's a sort of background noise going on on, on any kind of flat record, apparently flat record. And that background noise is telling you about the oceans. So there's a whole other uh, group of things that we can use seismic data for to tell us about our, um, the environment of the planet. And actually we've been using um, that background noise to tell us about um, historic ocean storms that don't appear on other records. So to go back to your question, uh, one of the unexpected things that we've learnt from seismic data collected on ice streams is that there's not just the seismic records from the glacier that we are studying directly. There's a lot of sort of background records, um, ice shelves in particular. That's where the um, ice sheet is um, floating over the ocean, but it hasn't broken off into um, icebergs yet. Ice shelves are very noisy places. So it, the range of signals that come out of a glacier are kind of in this 
a kind of bath of um, signals from from the ice shelves and from the ocean. So it's really um, yeah quite a lot of fun, sort of deconstructing all the, all those uh, wiggly lines. Um, so that would be that would be the unexpected thing about how how noisy the ice shelves are actually. It certainly sounds like a fascinating field and I'm a little bit jealous of all the field work that you get to go out and do. It sounds awesome. Stick with us listeners for part three as we discuss Anya's recent expedition to our southernmost continent. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Georgia Stewart and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our expert guest Anya Redding from the University of Tasmania. Anya, you've recently returned from an expedition to Antarctica. So packing for something like this would be a bit more thought out than any regular trip. How long do you spend preparing for something like that? So we have sort of two levels of preparation. One set of boxes that we have to prepare are the boxes that will travel to Antarctica by ship. So they need to be ready three or four months before we expect to fly to Antarctica. And those boxes contain all the heavy stuff. So all the batteries, all the cables, um, all the equipment boxes, those all travel to Antarctica or we have them ready to travel to Antarctica quite a few months before we travel south. And the, the second group of things that we need to take with us are all the computers and all the, I suppose, more technical items. And we carry those in our hand luggage. Um, and, yeah, basically, um, they need to be ready in good time. We don't want to forget a cable or we don't want to um, miss having our software installed, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, two, two levels of preparation. And how do you go about packing your personal kit? Because presumably there's certain items of clothing that you would need in Antarctica that you can't exactly find in Hobart City. Yeah, so our recent trip was supported by Australian Antarctic Division. And Australian Antarctic Division do a great job at supplying equipment um, to expeditioners. And those expeditioners might be um, tradespeople that work on the station and, and basically support science from the Antarctic station itself or they might be people like uh, myself and colleagues who are lucky enough to go out into the field. One fun thing is that whatever Antarctic nation you travel with there's kind of an assumption that everyone's the same size. (laughs) So I'm I'm quite a, a petite woman and, um, yeah, I've always had fun trying to find small enough boots uh, to, to suit me in Antarctica. That actually brings up a very interesting question to mind. But in terms of having your clothing that isn't necessarily suitable for a petite woman, as you said, are there difficulties with being a woman and preparing for a trip like this? Because Antarctica has been a sort of masculine-dominated environment historically, are things getting better and more even or just sort of facilities made available for women there? Yeah, that's a very big question. I think... um, Antarctica is almost like a a mini version of the society that it represents. So 
any of the troubles that you might find in Australia, also you might find at an Australian Antarctic station. Um, so, but Australian Antarctic divisions put a big effort in recently to um, to try and be a, a really inclusive and employer that that fosters diversity and equity. And um, in this recent trip, there was a great atmosphere on station, and everyone was was really included, which is really terrific. Um, one fun thing about um, Antarctica, working in the field in Antarctica, is that you want to leave no trace. So that means that um, anything you take out with you in the form of food <laughs> comes back with you in the form of usually some sort of uh, bin containing poo and pee. <laughs> so actually toileting is fairly easy because everything comes back with you and you can find some privacy to deal with whatever you need to deal with in Antarctica. I never knew that waste is brought back. I don't know why that never crossed my mind to wonder what happened with that, but I would not want to be the person that realised there's a leak in that bin, <laughs> if there ever was one. Anya, any last words of advice for listeners wanting to follow a similar career? I think there's no such thing as a standard career in geophysics. It's a very evolving uh, set of opportunities and um, problems about our planet, how our planet relates to people, um, that very much changes with the, with the decades. So I would say um, just be curious about the, the issues of the time and all the skills of physics and maths and computing that we've been talking that we were talking about earlier they're really adaptable so they don't limit you to any one um, career if you um, enjoy polar research for um, a few years there's absolutely opportunities to uh, follow similar lines of inquiry um, back in Tasmania or back in Australia more widely um, so I would think I would say adaptability is probably the key to um, to a fun career in geophysics very wise and very true well thank you so much for talking with us today and thank you listeners for tuning in this has been that's what I call science and we love bringing you stem related content and hope you enjoyed the show if you love the show you can get in touch with us by searching that's what I call science or that's science Taz on Facebook Instagram and Twitter my name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to extend a really warm thank you to my very new co-host, Georgia Stewart, and our expert guest, Anya Redding, for talking with us today. From us three, we hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.